sleep. I only understood the value of sleep when I lost it. And that happened at exactly the same time I became a parent. Whether it's the bone-crushing sleep deprivation of the early weeks and months, or the interrupted nights from wet beds and sick children, sleep is never the same. I'm Siobhan Hunt, and this is The Promise of Sleep, a podcast that explores all the ways parents and babies can get more sleep. In this episode of The Promise of Sleep, we're going to look at how to identify a sleep disorder and what can be done about them. When she's sleepwalking, she's in a bit of a, a, a daze or in her own world. So the way that we discovered that it was sleepwalking was that she wouldn't really respond to us. He just wakes up screaming and it's really quite upsetting. So um, we generally go in there and it's, it's almost as if he's half asleep and half awake. It was only when a friend of mine um, had to stay over unexpectedly one night and ended up having to share a room with Poppy. And in the morning, she said to me, I barely slept, not just because of the noise, because I was really scared, because Poppy was doing that sleep apnea thing where you... (gasps) And then it sounds like you've stopped breathing. Ideally, once our children leave toddlerhood, they also leave behind disrupted sleep. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. Some children experience sleep disorders that could be night terrors, sleep apnea or sleepwalking. But how can you tell that what your child is experiencing is a disorder? Dr Arthur Teng is a paediatrician and sleep disorder specialist at the Sydney Children's Sleep Disorders Clinic. He says something becomes a disorder when it affects other areas of your life. Sleep disorders can result in a whole range of behavioural and other problems that manifest during the day. For example, if you're very sleep-deprived as an adult, you fall asleep driving behind the wheel of a car. But in children, they're usually hyperactive. They can't sit still. They can sometimes be mistakenly diagnosed with ADHD because that's how children respond to sleep deprivation. One of the more unsettling sleep disorders that Dr Teng deals with is known as a night terror. It's just blood-curdling screaming. He's generally sitting up and he's screaming and he's um, kind of shaking his body and rolling around on the bed. So it is pretty confronting when you first first see it. It's um, hard to know, like, is he in pain or is has something happened? Has he been, you know, bitten by a spider? Or it's quite um, quite horrible, really. That's Cat Neild. She's describing what happens when her son, who's three and a half, has a night terror. As you can imagine, night terrors can be pretty distressing for parents. It's important to know that they are very different to nightmares. Dr. Delwyn Bartlett is a psychologist specialising in sleep health at the Woolcock Institute of Medical Research. So a night terror occurs usually in the first one third of the night and it's an arousal of slow wave sleep. So we only spend approximately 20% of the night in slow-wave sleep or deep sleep. And basically what happens during that period of time is that the vast proportion of your cortex has very little electrical activity, but your body is quite active, so you can walk. Um, You also secrete, if you're a child, a large amount of growth hormone during that time. So one of the key things is that a child can literally um, be aroused from deep sleep They can walk, um, they can talk, 
and they can literally be very, very scared, which is Unite Terror. So a key component of this is to keep them safe, to guide them gently back to bed and talk to them. Sometimes you can sort of touch them a little bit, but it's very important not to wake them or else you will generally increase their terror. What does it look like for a parent when your child wakes up and they have a night terror? How do you know it's not a nightmare? Usually because of the timing of sleep. So your nightmares occur towards morning and they're um, something that occurs in rapid eye movement sleep or dream sleep. So the night terrors tend to occur within the first one to three hours of the child going to sleep and they can really yell out, they can be quite, quite distressed and if they're up and running around that is very disconcerting for parents. The other thing is that often there's a familial predisposition so one of the parents or both of the parents might have had night terrors or um, been a sleepwalker or a sleep talker. So for instance in my family I'm still doing it which is quite rare and all three of my children talked and one walks. I have heard that night terror is part of the reason why parents freak out so much is that they think their kid, their child's awake. Yes, and and sometimes their eyes can be awake, most definitely. And but it's it's um, it is very hard to work out exactly what's happening, and that's why you want to pick them up, you want to soothe them, you want to make it okay. Most children will grow out of this somewhere between the ages of about three and occasionally up to seven. In the case of night terrors, it's probably fair to say that it's more unsettling for the parents than the child who's experiencing it. Dr. Tang again. So the typical thing is that the child's at breakfast, like nothing happened, but the parents are there red-eyed and hair out of place and they're sort of like bewildered, you know, and then what's wrong with, there's nothing wrong with him, he's sitting there having his <laughs> breakfast. So it doesn't really affect the child, it's more the underlying problem that you have to try and fathom out. I've had patients uh, where the parents thought they were possessed. So they've seen a priest even. Apparently, wow. apparently it's cheaper than me. <laughs> but um, but that's uh, it can be terrible. It can come every day. It can come like three times a week um, and then nothing for three months and then it comes again. So the important thing is to reassure the parents, no, your child's not possessed. Phew, right? But given holy water is not going to cure your child of night terrors, what will? Dr. Tang says it's important to check that there are no underlying sleep problems that are triggering night terrors. And for this, you'll need to see a sleep specialist. Otherwise, you need to look at overall sleep hygiene or healthy sleep habits. So if you're very sleep deprived, you've had several late nights, or if you had a fever, you have been sleep deprived, that will set off the night terror. So it's important to always go back to that good sleep habits, good sleep hygiene avoidance of sleep deprivation. I've cured night terrors in some patients by just moving the bedtime by 15 minutes earlier. So they just sleep at a slightly different time. They try and squeeze as much sleep in as they can. It's been shown that biologically you cannot change the arousal time in the morning. It's hard to actually keep someone asleep biologically. So the only thing you can change is the front end. So you have to sleep earlier and as earlier as you can. And you experiment. So if the child falls asleep immediately at 8.30, move it by 15 minutes. If the child falls asleep within 15 minutes, move it to 8 o'clock. Keep going. But you have to be very consistent. So if you avoid sleep deprivation, you can often avoid night terrors. 
parents will tell you the more we wake the child or try to wake the child, the, the longer it lasts because the child pushes them away. It prolongs that arousal. So you just pat them gently. Make sure the home environment is safe. So the important message is to make sure there are no sharp objects, uh, no uncovered window glass, that sort of thing. Night terrors, as you can see, are pretty extreme. But the common nightmare can also be upsetting, especially for kids. I had a nightmare about monster that want to eat my head off. I felt really scared. After I woke up, I hugged my daddy. I dream about very, very scary things. And when, and when I dream, I'm a little bit very scared. And my sister, when she dreams, she dream, she always comes to my mum's room and says, I'm scared and I'm dreaming. I had a nightmare about my mum got killed in a fire and it made me feel really sad after that. After I had my nightmare, I went into my mum and dad's room and I hugged my dad and mum. Nightmares can be frightening, confusing and mean nothing at all. But sometimes they can be a sign that something else is going on. You need to rule out things like bullying and stuff like that. So if there's a recurring theme to them, then you need to... Uh, sit the child down, you need to talk to the child carers, you need to talk to the teachers, if it's a school-age child, to see if things are going well. Um, often it's, you know, reassurance that's important. And often there are things in the parents' lives that impact on the child. And children are what I call emotional sponges. So if there's anxieties in the family and strains and stresses, they pick them up as well. So it's really important to let the parents know that. Um, and again, to stick to that quiet, routine, relaxing time at night before bedtime. Dr Delwyn Bartlett says that nightmares can also be caused by unresolved issues or a scary event in a child's life. And A classic example could be something like a child that years ago as an adult recalled that as a child was mauled by a dog. Dr Bartlett says that you can help your child move on from this kind of recurring nightmare through what's called imagery rehearsal therapy, which is a cognitive behavioural intervention. First, ask your child to describe what happens in the nightmare. So you can get a um, fairly clear picture of what is the content of that dream and what is the scariest part of that dream nightmare and what would you like to change. So you can write out a script that has a different ending and then you can help the child or the adult to repeat that at least three times before um, they go to sleep. And it just it's amazing what it can actually do in terms of brain processing at night. For some people it's very effective, for other people not as effective. So let's go back to the nightmare about the dog in the park and see how the outcome could be different. Who could you have with you that would make you safe? And um, explored the fact that Grandma always made me feel really safe, so Grandma came in with a whole lot of balloons and swooped me up before the dog arrived. So there's love and support and a sense of safety. Dr Teng also has some tips to reduce the occurrence of nightmares. What we tell parents is that you need to have what is termed good sleep habits. 
The term sleep hygiene has been used, but a lot of people don't like that. It sounds like somehow you're unhygienic or something. But <laughs> I prefer, you know, optimal sleep habits for children and things like keeping to a very strict sleep-wake cycle, like you don't have uh, erratic nights and routines. So bedtime is always the same time as much as you can. And also have a good routine that, you know, 7 p.m. after dinner, they have a story time and then they have a bath time. We like to avoid feeds just before bedtime. So things like this can help decrease the incidence of nightmares. So obviously, if you watch horror movies before bedtime, then you will get a nightmare. So we tell parents, have a really nice, relaxing, sometimes I call it a spa time. So you can have relaxing music in the background, quiet story time. Even baby massage has been shown to help babies and young children sleep well because it's part of the relaxation. Sounds like a lovely way to go to sleep. Maybe I should try it myself. We're going to take a quick break now and come back with some common sleep disorders like sleep apnea and sleepwalking. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're keen to try new things to get your baby to sleep. Why not try Bedtime Explorers? It's Kindling's relaxing meditation series designed specifically for little ones, featuring the soothing voice of mindfulness coach Amy Taylor-Kabaz. Breathe in and fill up the balloon in your belly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sleep apnea is one of the more common sleep disorders that affect children. She was about five, and she'd always been a really restless sleeper. That was the other thing. If she ever came in the bed with us, we were in danger of being karate kicked in the night. Um, she'd move around a lot. Um, she'd often wake up and be really disorientated. You know, unlike her sister, who was sort of like a log, you know, she'd go to sleep, wouldn't move, wouldn't make a sound. And we just thought, oh, that's her personality. That's what she's like, because she's a pretty active kind of crazy kid. That's Kate Brown. Her daughter, Poppy, was diagnosed with sleep apnea. And it was only when a friend of mine um, had to stay over unexpectedly one night and ended up having to share a room with Poppy. And in the morning, she said to me, I barely slept, not just because of the noise, because I was really scared, because Poppy was doing that sleep apnea thing where you... <gasps> and then it sounds like you've stopped breathing. And really, that was the final, that was the final piece in the puzzle, because this friend just said she, it, it sounded really terrible. She's really struggling. Um, and, and, and then this diagnosis confirmed it. Snoring is often the first sign a child has sleep apnea, but snoring itself isn't definitive proof that your child has this particular sleep disorder. Dr Arthur Teng. Often we get referred children who might have sleep apnea. So snoring is one of the main symptoms. Sometimes people think, oh, daddy snores, grandpa snores, so the child snores. That must be normal and it's kind of cute, really. But it's not normal necessarily. So 10% of children snore, 10 to 14% in worldwide research. Um, so that means that 90% of children don't. But it doesn't mean that if you snore, you're going to have sleep apnea. So the other symptoms that we will then ask is, does the child stop breathing? Are there pauses in the radio? You find sometimes you sort of wait for the next breath to come. That's what we call an apnea. And then you ask for other things like, does the child struggle to breathe? Does she toss and turn all the time? Is the child very sweaty in the sleep? Obstructive sleep apnea is mainly caused by large tonsils and adenoids. 
It's most commonly seen between the ages of two and four. Other symptoms can include mouth breathing and having difficulty eating, that is, when children can't breathe and swallow at the same time. Parents should also look out for recurrent bouts of tonsillitis between five to six episodes that require antibiotics within a 12-month period. Unlike nightmares or night terrors, sleep apnea has a tangible impact when children are awake. We know this impact on behaviour, this impacts on uh, attention and concentration during the day. 99% of adults with obstructive sleep apnea are excessively sleepy. They will fall asleep before the news is finished. They fall asleep in the afternoons on a Sunday and nothing else to do. Hopefully they don't fall asleep behind the wheel of a car, which is a huge public health problem, by the way. Uh, but children, so 99% of adults are sleepy. One third of children are sleepy. Two thirds of them are hyperactive. So the impact is behavioral. It's learning. We know that good sleep very important for learning, memory consolidation, learning new things, memory recall, all those things. So often there are behavioral consequences to obstructive sleep apnea. That's the impact. Uh, and some of it is from the disrupted sleep. If you suspect your child might have sleep apnea, the first port of call is your GP or paediatrician. They can give you a referral to a sleep specialist for a study to determine if they have sleep apnea. The main treatment for obstructive sleep apnea is an adenoid tonsillectomy, which has an 85% success rate for the average child. For Kate and her daughter Poppy, surgery solved a lot of problems. Yeah, so we were booked in for her to have her adenoids out, um, which we're all a bit trepidatious about, but it actually was not too bad. It was a, a day procedure. And within about two weeks, I noticed she was breathing through her nose a little bit more. It is hard. They told me it is a hard habit to break because if that's all you've ever known, that's what you're going to do. Um, and the ENT specialist said, look, you know, over six months, this this will improve. Uh, within a couple of weeks, we, she stopped wetting the bed completely, which was cause for great celebration. But I also felt really bad because obviously th- that would have happened a lot earlier if she hadn't had the apnea. Um, we noticed she wasn't snoring when she was asleep. We noticed her mood through the day was much better not 100%, uh, but they wouldn't put that down to personality. But definitely she became a lot more reasonable and seemed a lot less ratty um, and went back to the dentist uh, about three or four months later and he confirmed that she'd stopped this funny swallowing mechanism that she'd been doing because her mouth was open a lot of the time and she was breathing through her nose. Um, it made a radical difference and, and it was something that we just hadn't picked up for ages. The last sleep disorder we're going to look at is sleepwalking. She began sleepwalking probably around the age of four. She's always been a bit of a sleep talker and a bit of a mover in at night time. Although when she was about four, we began to hear a bit more noise coming from that side of the house. That's Lily. Her daughter didn't sleepwalk every night, but when she did, it was a bit disconcerting. When she's sleepwalking, she's in a bit of a a daze or in her own world. She wouldn't really respond to us. Um, She wouldn't answer us directly and would be kind of responsive to our touch, but not so much to our words. I remember distinctly one time she thought she was chasing rabbits. 
And so she was calling out to the rabbits and, and to get them and to pick them up and they were in danger and things like that. And it was quite difficult to guide her back to her bed that night. If your child is a sleepwalker or sleep talker, it's a bit like night terrors. That is, you're likely to feel the impact more than your child. Dr. Teng. Sleep talking is not a big problem. Sleep talking, apparently, we all do at some stage, and it probably comes from REM sleep. Um, But uh, sleepwalking, probably about 10% of the population, and uh, most people grow out of it by by later childhood. There are adults who can, of course, uh, sleepwalk. Um, Again, it's the same with night terrors. You have to make sure that there is no other underlying problem. So for someone that is more towards school age, you have to make sure still there is no obstructive sleep apnea. But there are other things that can fragment sleep and cause that partial arousal. For example, eczema. So you're scratching all night and that's going to cause a partial arousal. Make sure that your eczema is well treated. The second thing is uh, reflux can be worse at night. So you look for heartburn and vomiting and that sort of thing. Uh, Even asthma is worse at night. So you need to treat the underlying problem. Um, And... uh, uh, and that could be the, the reason for that partial arousal, which gives way to the sleepwalking. Um, and uh, yes, the the dream recall is very va- variable. Um, in a nightmare, the dream recall is very good usually because they can say that's a scary dream. Why? Because the brain waves are very active in dream sleep. It's like almost you're awake. But in, in uh, night terrors and sleepwalking, in that spectrum, the brain is asleep. So the the recall of the dream content is very vague and it's uh, it's not as clear as in the night terrors. They often don't recall. In fact, that's how we often tell which is which and they usually don't remember much of it. So we do dream in non-REM sleep as well, in very deep sleep, but it's not half as exciting as in REM sleep when it's really colourful and vivid. Right. Mm. So with sleepwalking, is it the same as night terrors in that there's really no adverse effects um, apart from the parent waking up and, of course, making sure that your child is safe? Correct. If you think your child has any of the symptoms of a sleep disorder, see a professional. Go to your GP and get a referral to a child sleep disorder specialist. They can help you all get a better night's sleep. That's it for this episode. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or comment, send us an email. It's podcast at kindling.com.au. If you think this podcast or any others in this series would help a friend, please let them know. And if you have time to leave a rating on iTunes, that will help us reach more parents. On the next episode of The Promise of Sleep, we're looking at sleep deprivation and the health and well-being of parents. We often can't change what's happened during the night, but what you can change is how you, what you make out of your day ahead. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you then.